Good morning. We certainly never want to be respecters of persons, but I think it's okay from time to time for us to take note of important days. We just passed one a couple of days ago, and if you, many of you have an instant church directory, you can always go and look and not only see the families that are listed, but also birthdays and anniversaries, and it's a good way to keep up with who's passing such a milestone. And uh, it seemed like a couple of days ago there was somebody who had one of those. I'm not going to tell you his name, but it starts with an H and it ends, well, you know how the rest of that goes. We are thankful. We're coming up on two years since the Kemps were, uh, made the move to be here, and it has been a blessing uh, to us. And even beyond that, it has been so strengthening and helped us to grow in, in such a great way. And I'm thankful to have, I could not think of a better co-worker. And I'm so thankful for Hiram and the good work he does in his wonderful and beautiful family, all of them. I grew up in coastal Georgia, and in doing so, spent my teen years fishing in some of the waters that are fed by the uh, Ohupi and the Canoochee and the Altamaha rivers, and also spent some time fishing in some of the smaller lakes and ponds. My fishing buddy was a fellow by the name of David Stewart. And David, he was a little younger than me, and his parents bought all of his fishing equipment, and so he had all of these expensive lures. I was paying for my own, and so I would buy about a dollar's worth of crappie jigs and maybe 30 cents worth of chicken gizzards. But when the fish were biting, and it was one of those kind of days, they would eat my fast food just as readily as they would eat his five-star cuisine. But I found pretty early on that to be successful in fishing, one of the things that you have got to do is to bury the hook. You know, you take those crappie jigs, and the first few times that you would cast them out, those feathered tails would hide that hook, but it didn't take long for it to mat away, and that hook would glisten underwater, and my effectiveness dwindled the more times I tossed that. You know, Satan is the savviest angler of them all, and he is the master at burying the hook. I want you to think about the masses of people that he has helped to take the bait who could not see the hook. And through his lures, he has hooked people through such things as gambling and pornography and adultery and tobacco and alcohol and sexual immorality. And so often by the time that the lure is old and worn out and the hook is plainly in view, then it's... Perhaps too late. You know, when Jesus walked this earth, he had to deal with the angler of them all, the adversary, the devil. And he had to deal with the lures that Satan had available for him. I appreciate the reading that Gary did just now in Matthew chapter 4, and it's one of the three Gospels that deals with the temptations of Jesus. But I want you to think about a commentary that's made with regard to that later on. So then we have a great high priest who has passed into the heavens, Jesus the Son of God. So therefore let us hold fast our profession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities, but was tempted in all points like as we are, yet without sin. Therefore let us come boldly under the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace for help in time of need. For every high priest... He's taken from among men, 
ministers to men and things pertaining of God so that he can offer up both gifts and sacrifices to God. And he can deal compassionately with the ignorant and with those who are out of the way, seeing that he too is compassed with infirmity. And so he gives as he ought for the people, so also for himself, offerings for sin. And no high priest takes this honor to himself, but is called of God as Aaron was. So too we see that Christ glorified not himself to be called a high priest, but as it is said in one place, you are my son, today have I begotten you. As he said also in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with strong cryings and tears unto the one that was able to save him from death and was heard in that he feared, though he were a son, yet learned the obedience by the things which he suffered, and being made perfect, he became the author of eternal salvation to everyone that obeys him. In reading from Hebrews 4.14 through Hebrews chapter 5 in verse 9, we realize that Jesus struggled in his flesh as we do. That he had to come face to face with that adversary, the master angler, who is seeking to lure all men, including the Son of Man. I read that in the building of the Union Pacific Railroad that there was a need to build a trestle bridge over one of the large canyons of the West. And there was a builder who, in constructing that design, came up with a brilliant plan. He said, we're going to build a, uh, uh, we're going to put together a train load. And we're going to make it twice as heavy with cars and equipment than will normally go over this bridge. And we're going to take it out to the middle of the bridge and we're going to park it there and we're going to leave it for an entire day. Well, one of the workers on that project didn't understand and so he asked the builder, are you trying to break the bridge? And the builder said, no, I'm trying to prove that the bridge will not break. When we come to read what is said about Jesus in the Gospels, and Matthew, Mark, and Luke record these temptations, it is an indication to us that the Son of Man was tempted like we are. But Jesus faces up to those temptations in a way that we cannot. And the Hebrews writer shows us that he was under the pressure and the stress of those temptations, but that he was not going to crack and he was not going to break because when we come face to face with ours, so often we're going to. And so we need one who can help us, who has not broken like we have. You think about Jesus and what he endured. I think it's a safe bet to say that Jesus endured the severity of temptations like few of us will ever understand when Jesus had not eaten for 40 days, the devil comes along and tempts him with food. He questions and challenges Jesus' identity. And Jesus is offered something from Satan that may be hard for us to understand that in a world that was soon going to turn against him and was going to treat him violently, that he offers him something that apparently was within his grasp to give and that was the world. And so Jesus is tempted in these ways. But I'm so thankful that the scriptures tell us that because Jesus successfully resisted, we can too. 
Now what I want us to do this morning is to see how Jesus was successful in temptation. And if we can look and follow his example, it's going to help us when we inevitably come face to face with the tests and trials. They happen on the Lord's Day. They happen in the worship assembly. They happen seven days a week, every day of our life. And so we've got to be able to have strategies to stand up against those things. Jesus can help us with that. How did Jesus do it? Number one, Jesus resisted temptation because he had a relationship with the Spirit of God. This is an interesting fact that we see when we begin to read the gospel accounts when Jesus goes into the wilderness. Matthew says that Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. To me, that has a gentle quality about that. It's cooperation between the Godhead. But then I look at Mark's account and I see a little bit of a different rendering where Mark tells us that he was impelled by the Spirit. That word impelled has with it the idea of throwing violently. He threw him out into the wilderness. And while we don't know or understand completely what's meant by Mark here in its entirety, perhaps there was some fear or resistance that Jesus naturally felt at the prospect of going into the wilderness. And Luke tells us that the Spirit was with Jesus and led him up and led him around in the wilderness for those 40 days, according to Luke chapter 4, verse 1 and verse 2. Now, so far as we can see, this is what the Scriptures tell us in the Gospels about Jesus and the Spirit. But I don't think, even though this is all we have, that the reference of the Spirit along with Jesus in the wilderness is either coincidental or accidental. We see a relationship that Jesus had with the Spirit that helped him through this time. Now as I think about this, I come to understand some material differences between myself and Jesus and my relationship with the Spirit and myself. For example, John chapter 3 and verse 34 says that Jesus had the Spirit without measure. I even realize that I don't have the gift that the early Christians had. 1 Corinthians 13, 8 and 9 says when the perfect was come, then the apart was going to be done away with. And I also know that even those folks that had the miraculous gifts of the Spirit, it did not keep them from sinning. Paul addresses in 1 Corinthians, they were fighting over having tongues or other spiritual gifts. And so I understand my relationship with the Spirit is different than Jesus's. Jesus, the perfect Son of God, perfectly resists, but He does so as a part of His relationship with the Spirit. And that helps me. Because if I'm going to be successful in temptation, then I must have a relationship with the Spirit. I ask myself then, how do I do that? Well, perhaps the most powerful way that we see in Scripture is that God's Spirit has given us the sword of the Spirit. That's going to help us to fight in this battle. Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 17. And we're going to look more at that in just a moment. It's a blessing in our lives that the Spirit of God led the men of God to write down the perfect will of God so that we could be perfected. We know this passage. We reference it quite often. And it's so important because it tells us that the Bibles that we have come from God. And it's God's weapon to help us at the worst battles that we face. The Bible tells us that the Word of God is God-breathed. All Scripture is God-breathed. And it's profitable for us for doctrine, reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness that the man of God may be complete or perfect. But I'm also grateful that there's more beyond this. 
The Apostle Paul is going to tell me how I can draw on the Spirit's strength in my life as a child of God. He says, for this cause I bow my knees unto the Father from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that he would strengthen you according to the glory of his might with his spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. It's not in some miraculous way that overcomes me or overwhelms me. But as I am walking in the light of Jesus Christ, the Spirit of God within me gives me strength in my battle. But I've got, of course, make sure that I'm cooperating and walking in the light. But in doing so, I see an example I could follow in Jesus. How was he so successful? When temptation came, he kept close to God. God, yes, the Father, but also God the Spirit. I need to do the same. But second, Jesus was successful with temptation because he practiced self-denial. It's incredible to see how Jesus had to face so much. Mark chapter 1 and verse 13 would indicate to us that Jesus would have to deny himself because of the frightful prospect of the wild beasts in the wilderness. We don't often talk about this aspect, and I don't know what all specifically is involved in that. You know, you think about the predators that we face in our nation today, but think about the world stage and some of the deadly things that exist. I don't know what Jesus went up against. But Jesus had to deny himself in order to do that for that period of time. And it seems from Luke's gospel that the entire time that Jesus is in the wilderness, that he is coming face to face with the devil. Matthew chooses to focus on what happens at the end of that 40-day period. But Mark and Luke would say that throughout this time, the devil is coming to him and is tempting him. The way that Jesus was successful in this is that he denied himself. And that tells me if the perfect son of God had to deny himself, what about me? Jesus would indicate in his writings about discipleship that if we are going to truly follow him, that self-denial is involved in that. In Luke chapter 9 and verse 23, we know the passage, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and, uh, daily and follow me. Chrysostom of Antioch would say in the 4th century that I must not confess myself, I must not own myself, but I must renounce myself in complete renunciation of my being and not just my sins. But Jesus is not asking us to do anything that he himself did not do. So what I say as I look at that is that if a perfect son of God who did not give into temptation had to deny himself, don't I have to do the same? We'll say more about this in our next point, but I want you to think about the fact that we have the ability to look into our own lives like nobody else. There may be somebody who looks at you and they think they know what your battle is, but you know that you and God alone know what it is that you really struggle with, and of course it's going to change from time to time. And there are ways in 1 John 2, 15 through 17, and so it may be lust or lying, it may be the tongue or temper, it may be food or alcohol or tobacco. But I've got to have an honest self-assessment and say, where is it that I struggle? And I also have to realize that it is going to be an ongoing process throughout my life of putting myself to death and following Christ, of not being conformed but being transformed as I offer my life a living sacrifice to him, Romans 12 and verse 1. Augustine was one of the early church fathers and the reports are that he lived a very decadent life before he was converted. 
One day after he was converted, he was walking down the street and there was a woman that he knew from his life of sin. And as soon as Augustine saw her, he took off running and she took off after him. And as she ran after him, she said, Augustine, why do you run? It is I. And Augustine says, I run because I am not I. He was thinking about Paul's words in Galatians 2 and verse 20. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. How was Jesus successful in temptation with the devil? Well, I see here that he had to deny himself, and I'm going to have to do the same. I'm going to have to look into my life and see what areas I struggle with, where my weakness is, and deny myself in those regards. How did Jesus resist temptation? Third, Jesus knew the Word of God. He knew the Word of God. In this particular context, he knew the book of Deuteronomy. He quotes it three different times in answer to the the devil's approaches. But when we look at Jesus' life, we see that Jesus is one who was so filled with the Word of God that it just came out in his conversation. It came out in the course of his ministry and his life. We read in the Gospels, and Jesus alludes to or quotes the Old Testament 20 different times that are recorded for us in every major section of the Old Testament. When Jesus came face to face with some challenge in his life, his mind went to the Word of God, and he thought about what it had to say to help him. I think that he had to be following the same strategy that David did. David said, your word have I hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. And David was that perfect, uh, Jesus rather, was that perfect blessed man that David talks about in Psalm chapter 1. Blessed is the man that walks not in the counsel of the ungodly or stands in the way of sinners or sits in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law does he meditate day and night. And we see how in Jesus' life his meditation upon the word of God was directly tied to his successful resistance against temptation. And that helps me to understand in the struggles that I face, there's a process. And the process involves the Word of God, but it doesn't just involve randomly reading. What I'm going to do is I'm going to begin with an honest self-evaluation. I'm going to look into my life and I'm going to say, right now, this is the greatest struggle that I'm having. And once I understand what that struggle is, what I'm going to do is I'm going to go to the Word of God and I'm going to begin to search through Scripture. And I want to see what God's Word has to say, not only about the consequences of it, but also how to conquer it. And as I do this, I am going to accumulate wisdom from the principles and the precepts of what those Scriptures have to say. And I'm going to internalize that, and it's going to help me in the battle that I face. I figured a way for us to really get a a grasp about how that process goes is to talk about something that I've struggled with in my life and the process that's involved in overcoming that. I'm not saying that I've overcome it, but I'm working on it. And that's the example of working with temper. If you have a problem with your temper, how do you go about solving that? Well, the thing you can do is you can begin to study and see what Scripture says about temper. In Proverbs chapter uh, 29 and verse 11, it says that a fool quickly loses his temper, but a wise man holds it back. Now, I read Proverbs, and I realize there are two people, broadly speaking. There's the wise, and there's the fool. 
And you can't read through Proverbs without getting to the bottom line and saying, I don't want to be the fool because of what happens to him. I do want to be the wise. Proverbs 16 and verse 32, the one who is slow to anger is better than the mighty. Now, I know that there are a lot of different scriptures in addition to this that talk about the danger and the problem of temper. But I can further my Bible study by going into areas where temper can become a sin problem. And as I do that, I'm going to make my way to James chapter 3. I'm going to look at verse 2 through verse 11. And while it doesn't talk about temper exactly, it talks about the power of the tongue. And in this context, the negative power of the tongue. And so often, how do we know that somebody has a temper problem because of what comes out of their mouth? But then I'm also going to go to a passage that talks about how I want to be a new man. And to put away the old man. And Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 26 says that the new man is going to be one who is angry but does not sin in his anger. And so these are passages that begin to shape me. And there's a great many others where I can go. But somewhere along the line, as I'm really investigating this, I'm going to come to a passage like what Paul says to the Colossians. In Colossians chapter 3 and verse 12. When he says, as he writes to them who are called of God, holy and beloved... He says, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, gentleness, humility, patience, forbearing one another, forgiving one another. If any has a complaint against any, even as God for Christ's sake has forgiven you, so also forgive one another. And put on the bond of love, which is the perfect bond of unity. And uh, be thankful knowing that you were called into one body and uh, be at peace. Colossians 3.12 through verse 16. And I will see as I fight my battle with temper that I have got To watch my heart. I need to be very careful, verse 12, about how I think about people. And I need to be honest in how I think about myself. But not only am I going to watch my heart, I'm also going to watch my relationships. In Proverbs chapter 3, verse 12 and 13, how am I interacting with others? But third, I'm going to uh, look in my life and I want to treat others the way I want God to treat me. Verse 13. Knowing what he's done for me, I've got to make sure that I'm reflecting that kindness, that gentleness, that humility with others. And I'm also going to let God's word and God's will rule my spirit, verse 14 and 15. That is not going to ensure that you never sin in that area again, but what it will do is it will make you mindful. And the point is, whatever your struggle is, whatever you're wrestling with, You've got to be working on it well in advance before the temptation arises, building those resources so that you can do like Jesus and with the Word of God, you can defeat him. James chapter 4 tells us that if we resist the devil, he will flee from us and so God has given us the ability and it's through his Word that we can overcome. Jesus resisted temptation because he already had the Word of God in his life. But then I also want you to notice with me that Jesus resisted temptation because he said no and he meant no. He meant no. When we think about Jesus in the wilderness, I want you to consider how Mark and Luke again tell us that he went through this over and over again. Jesus had already made up his mind. And he knew that he wasn't going to give in. And so he was resolute You know, when we think about others in the Bible, I'm thankful that God's Word has given us examples of those who came face to face with temptation and they were able to stand up to it. Do you remember a couple of months ago we talked about Joseph and how Joseph said no and he meant no? 
He came face to face with a very powerful temptation, perhaps. She had power, position, she had persistence, and maybe even prettiness going for her. And she tempted him to be sexually immoral with her. She even grabbed him, Genesis 39 and verse 12, and he escaped. We need to understand that there are going to be some areas that are stronger, places where the hooks are going to be harder for us to to not necessarily see unless we're prepared to say no. When we think about how Jesus demonstrates for us, I think about what happens in Luke chapter 4 in verse 13. Jesus is able to say, go away, Matthew chapter 4 in verse 10. But it says that the devil left him until an opportune time. Will you think about that in terms of your own life? You say no to the devil and his temptations. He will go away. But he'll come back. But Jesus shows us how we can be successful the next time, the same as we were the last time. Say no to self-sin and to Satan and mean it. That's what Jesus does in his temptations. You know, when you think about what's going on in our battle with temptation, it's frustrating that it's going to be an ever-present battle as long as we're in these bodies. But someday we're going to lay down those bodies and we need to understand that it's not inevitable. This battle that we're in doesn't end inevitably with us being on the devil's table. We can get off the hook. It's a fight for our lives and we have to be in a struggle. And so we understand that God can help us Because we understand that with Satan the hooks are hidden. But with Jesus there's always a way of escape. In 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 13, the Apostle Paul tells us that God will provide a way of escape that we may be able to bear it. And because Jesus was successful in his temptation, he helps us in two ways. First of all, he provides the way for us to be successful. He is able to say in prospect, knowing that as he finishes the work of the Father, John chapter 19 and verse 11, that what he says in John 14, 6 is going to take place, that I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. And Jesus having overcome, Hebrews 2, 14 and 15, we now can. The devil has no power in our life through Christ. And second, Jesus helps us by being an example that we can follow. What does Jesus do on this occasion? When we look at Jesus as he is tempted, we see uh, him being one who is able to deny himself. He knows how difficult this is, but he denies self. Leaning upon the word of God. And he does so with the help of God's spirit and the Father. And he does so realizing that saying no is something you can say, but also mean. This morning, I don't know what battles you're fighting, but I know you're fighting battles. If you're going to be successful in that fight, you've got to do as Jesus did. And in following that, we can be successful. This morning, it may be that you've not yet obeyed the gospel, and it may be that there are roadblocks that are being put out in front of you. Have you ever thought that The one behind that may be the devil. It may be a lure, but the the one who is savvy by the eyes of faith can see past the moment of the temptation and can understand the hook that's buried. Who is it that wants to keep you from God's blessings? Who is it that wants to keep you from God's salvation? But who is it that wants you to have that? Perhaps this morning you're ready to not any longer 
be subjugated to that temptation, to be away from God. We're going to sing a song of invitation. It's an encouragement from heaven itself. If you're weary, you're thirsty, and you're ready to come, God is awaiting. You're coming to Him. If you've not yet acted in your faith in repentance and baptism, we can help you to do that. If you're a child of God who's struggling and losing the battle with temptation, perhaps you need our prayers and our strength and our encouragement to help you with that. If this is an invitation to which you need to respond, we would encourage you. We wait for you. All heaven waits as together we stand and sing.